Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. We're so used to jumping on the good opportunity, which is, you know, certainly what you should do if you have time and room in your schedule. But if you don't, and if you were trying to pursue your own course, and there's this thing that looks like a good opportunity, but you really don't have the bandwidth for it, we have to learn the strength and, and the techniques to say no, because taking on an additional, uh, an additional thing to do that you don't have time to do, you're probably going to do it uh, poorly. I mean, it's the equivalent of you have a life raft that can have 10 people on it. And, you know, there's a couple of guys in the ocean and you're like, yeah, come on. Well, guess what? You're all going to drown now. That is Dory Clark, one of the top executive coaches in the world and the number one ranked communication coach in the world, talking about playing the long game in your career and your personal life. In this episode of The Resilient Surgeon, Dory will show you how to say no to things you don't want to do, and even to potentially great opportunities, so you can protect your time and energy for the things that really matter to you and not someone else. Saying no so we can say yes to the things that matter is the critical first habit of the Resilience Bank account. A set of nine habits that if practiced regularly will help you to be your best self in and out of the operating room. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org ebook. Our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon is literally a force of nature, and her name is Dory Clark. I first came across Dory several years ago when I read one of the near 200 articles she has written for Harvard Business Review. At the time, I was looking for a coach and mentor that could help me learn how to develop a thought leader's practice with my ideas for the Resilience Bank account. So I joined one of her mastermind groups, went to New York and w- to work with her, and I haven't looked back. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made for several reasons. First, Dory is an incredibly kind, funny, 
irreverent and caring person with a seriously infectious personality that lifts up everyone around her. Second is her credentials. Dory has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50, which is the equivalent of the Oscars for movies. And she has been recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. If you're not familiar with Marshall Goldberg, he is one of the most, if not the most, influential executive coaches in the world who has coached people like Alan Mullaly, the former CEO of Ford Motor Company. And third, Dory is the author of three books, Reinventing You, Entrepreneurial You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. All of the books are about career development and finding interest and meaning in our work. The New York Times said that Dory is an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. But to put it in Dory's own words, I am passionate about helping others take control of their professional lives and helping them to make an impact on the world. Okay, so why did I ask Dory to be our guest on a podcast about resilience? In my concept of the resilience bank account, there are nine habits that can make a real difference in one's ability to be their best self. And the very first habit is to say no, so you can say yes to what matters to you. In our surgical training, we are inculcated with the say yes to everything habit, which can lead to opportunities in career progress, but without a deliberate and intentional process of deciding what to say yes to, we can end up being drowned in a sea of activities that we don't really want to do or care about. And as Dory says, living our lives on autopilot. I know for me personally that the say yes to everything habit, though useful in the early stages of my career, played a significant role in the overextended misery I experienced later. The say yes habit combined with the constant busyness that has become the modern norm are the fires that fuel a life of being on autopilot, and they are a major contributor to the rampant burnout so many surgeons and other high-performance executives are struggling with. Dory has written a new book called The Long Game, in which she gives us sensational and concrete advice about developing a career that interests us and that we find meaning in. And part of that process is learning when and how to say no, even to great opportunities. Dory, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Michael, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Dory, you say in the long game that too many talented professionals spend their lives on autopilot and that you can't pour more liquid into a glass that is full. And you also say that the power of consciously choosing how we are going to spend our time and therefore our lives is monumental. It seems like you had an aha moment about these ideas as you were crossing the Brooklyn Bridge early one morning in the dark, in the back of a cab on your way to the airport. Can you tell us a little bit about that aha moment? I, I definitely can. <laughs> this is the, the scene that I opened the long game with. And yeah. it, was, it was kind of a moment of, of personal misery. On one hand, um, like, like a lot of things, it was uh, exciting and glamorous. I was uh, right. taking a flight to Los Angeles and I was going to be meeting with clients at this you know, 
famous company that everyone's heard of and, uh, and you know, do, doing all of these activities that on one hand are the, the exact things that you strive for when you're starting your business. You want the high profile exotic travel, yes. um, but then I parceled it down. And, and at, a, at a certain point in that moment, when I actually looked at what I was doing, I had set my alarm for something like 3.30 in the morning. Right. I had a, a five o'clock flight uh, and I needed to, to be on it because I had meetings literally all day, starting in the morning in Los Angeles, going until what would have been nine o'clock at night on the East Coast. Uh, I had that for two days in a row. And then I had to fly back to Atlanta for a dinner meeting that I was going to straight from the airport and giving a speech the next morning. So there was just no margin. And that time it worked out and nothing was delayed and, and everything came off. But you have enough of these kind of back to back things and, and close calls and just everything collapses if, if some piece in the system mm -hmm. goes yeah. wrong, which inevitably at some point it does. And you begin to realize wait a minute, this, this isn't quite what I bargained for. This is not the outcome that I wanted to end up with. Mm. How did I get here? And what could I do differently so that it's not quite this painful and not quite this precarious? And what was interesting is you began to wonder how in the world you, quote, decided, end quote, your life should be that way. And so can you comment on the issue of having decided, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the big problems for all of us is that in many cases, we don't feel we're making decisions. Um, certainly we're not, you know, in most cases, sitting down and writing elaborate pro and con lists and, and saying, oh, sh you know, should I do this? Should I not? The problem the, where it gets pernicious is that we feel like we don't have a choice. We just keep marching on a path or on a direction that we've set. It feels almost inevitable. But of course, it, nothing's inevitable. Right. Um, we have been making choices. They've just been invisible to us. Invisible. And that creates, uh, that creates a problem. And we need to take back agency over those choices. That's beautifully put. Well, so Dory, what are the, as you say it, the real reasons we are all so busy? Yeah. Well, there's there's the literal ones, I guess you could say, the ones that probably everyone can agree on. Uh, for any, you know, for any physician, for any professional, you say, why are you so busy? And you say, oh my God, I have so many meetings. Oh, I get so many emails. And that's that's not wrong. We all have tons of meetings. We all have tons of emails. That is correct. But in addition to that, again, this is kind of like an iceberg. There's a lot under the surface too. Yes, and yes. Uh, what I've realized is that a few of the things that are under the surface, um, one is that for not all of us, but for many of us, we actually derive an emotional benefit from being that busy. Uh, in, in many cultures, certainly in American culture, uh, there's a prestige to constantly being busy. Uh, it's, it's a sort of shorthand where other people feel, and we can even feel about ourselves, that we are needed, we are in mm -hmm. demand, mm -hmm. and we are important. And if we're not quite so busy, we begin to wonder, well, gosh, am I actually that important? That's one piece. And another aspect, which is an emotional aspect of this question, is that sometimes even though, you know, everybody will say, oh, yes, you know, strategic thinking, that's really important. 
um, a stunning percentage of people, even if they think it's important, they don't make time for it. And part of the reason is that, frankly, some of the questions that one might ask oneself while you are doing strategic thinking or long-term planning are a little uncomfortable. Are, are we actually doing the right thing? Are we spending our time the way we want? Are we optimizing for the outcomes that are correct for us or just a thing that somebody else thought might be good for us? Um, it can be a little tricky to parse that. And so oftentimes we don't, and we just instead uh, redouble our efforts to keep doing what we've been doing. So those are some of the challenges for sure. Um, what, what of that resonates with you, Michael? Oh, for goodness sakes, all of it. Uh, you know, you call them the hidden benefits, and that's the sense that we're important, emotional gratification, uh, you know, especially early in my career. That, that was a profound thing to feel like you're valued and important. And, you know, it feeds on the ego, but there was never really a time to sit and think about what's the strategic planning of my life and my career, as you say. Another one that I was really... Uh, struck by is this idea of numbing out as a reason uh, for being so busy. Do you want to comment on that, please? Yeah, definitely. So one, one of the other myriad reasons <laughs> why we might be so busy is that, again, you know, not, not everyone, but for many people, um, busyness is, is just a way to not, to not deal with some of the things that we don't want to be dealing with. Um, you know, physicians know better than anyone that uh, people often adopt crutches. You know, for, for some people, it's watching too much TV, or for some yeah, people, right. it's alcohol or drugs or, you know, or, or porn or whatever the thing is. Yeah, it's all um, in the same basket. Yeah. It absolutely is. And work, um, you know, I, in the scheme of things, I mean, is work better than crack? Yes, it is. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, it's not great. To on, work I think it depends on who you ask on that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, ideally, though, we don't want to be numbing out as a habit in general. And yeah. if we're using work in that way, our relationship to it probably isn't healthy anymore. Right. And you also make the really important observation that it's important to have a, a change in perspective around this idea of being so busy that we don't venerate it, you know, uh, which I think is really, uh, really important, uh, especially if you're in circles like, you know, high, high, high profile executives or cardiothoracic surgeons where it just becomes the norm and, and it, it is venerated, you know, that level of busyness. All right. So then how do we go about? saying no, even to good things. And, and why is yes so easy and often the default answer to things? Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to dive into this a little bit more. I mean, you know, I think most of us can imagine why yes is, is easy in the moment. It's so nice. It's so gratifying, you know, when, when somebody wants something or asks for something and, and you make them happy and you don't, you get to avoid having a difficult conversation or disappointing right. anyone or, or things like that. The benefit is immediate. Um, but there is often a cost and that cost is something that gets paid out over time when you have found, when you find yourself having agreed to a thing that actually maybe you mm -hmm. should not have mm -hmm. agreed to. 
Um, so it's, it's like, it's like a lot of drugs, right? Great in the yeah. moment, much less great, uh, over time as the consequences unravel. And part of why I mentioned, um, the importance of saying no, even to good things mm-hmm. is that I think there's, there's two categories that we have to be mindful of. There are some things that, you know, to be clear, we might say yes to them because it's just awkward or hard to say no, but we know all along that it's not a great thing. And, yes. you know, it's like, Oh God, I don't want to do it, but uh, you know, and How many so times? Yeah. we're very clear about that, but the hard part, the super hard part that happens over time as we get more and more successful is we actually have to learn to say no even to good things, because Mm -hmm. the truth is when, when you are successful, you will be presented with a lot of opportunities. And at a certain point, you literally just run out of time to do them. And we're so used to jumping on the good opportunity, which is, you know, certainly what you should do if you have time and room in your schedule. But if you don't, and if you were trying to pursue your own course, and there's this thing that looks like a good opportunity, but you really don't have the bandwidth for it. We have to learn the strength and, and the techniques to say no, because taking on an additional uh, an additional thing to do that you don't have time to do, you're probably going to do it uh, poorly. I mean, it's the equivalent of you have a life raft that can have 10 people on it. And you know, there's a couple of guys in the ocean and you're like, yeah, come on. Well, guess what? You're all going to drown now. And yeah, that's, that's, a good that's analogy, the problem. Good metaphor. Really excellent metaphor. So then how do we get good at identifying those good opportunities that we do need to say no to? Yes. So part of this, and this is one of the central elements of the long game, is really getting clear on what your priorities are in creating your own long-term vision, irrespective of what other people want from you or expect from you. Uh, because certainly it it, give, it gives you a North Star by which you can evaluate what you're doing. Because there might be something cool, but um, but if it doesn't really align with your overall objectives, it's easier to say no. Um, I also think that it's really important. Uh, one of the the pieces that I talk about is understanding the overall cost of doing something. So meaning the opportunity cost or how it's going to impact you in other ways. Um, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about a chance that I had. A friend invited me to speak to a conference that she was helping organize in the Caribbean. And it sounded, it sounded cool. It was, it was this, you know, mm-hmm. my, my friend was involved. It was in a beautiful location. You just essentially get to have a vacation with a bunch of cool folks. So on one hand, it seemed very appealing. And literally, I was free that week. So I could have done it. Mm-hmm. But I tried to, to really think about some of the key principles that I had been playing around with before. Uh, and one of them was understanding the, the physical and emotional cost of travel. And I looked right. at my calendar and I realized, okay, I was free that week, but I was traveling the week before and I was traveling the week after. Did I really want to be on the road three consecutive weeks, you know, traveling around the world away from home, you know, on germy planes and whatever before COVID. And I thought, God, you know, I'm not even going to be able to enjoy that because I'm going to be so worn out from it. And just realizing that overscheduling myself was becoming a problem. And 
I thought, you know, what's, what's most appealing about this is the chance to spend time with my friend, but she lives in Brooklyn and I live in Manhattan. <laughs> like I actually don't have to go to the Caribbean to do that. <laughs> well, that's a perfect example. That's for sure. You know, and that, that gets us to, uh, what I, what I call the, well, it's the operating room checklist, but it's a checklist that you use with your coaching clients. And, and it's a checklist to help you decide when to say no to a good opportunity. And you've alluded to some of it, but can you kind of go through that in some detail? Because I think it's just incredibly useful. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of how do you evaluate an opportunity and whether to say no to it. Um, one of the, the key pieces that, uh, that we talked about was the, the overall cost. So that mm -hmm. this includes, um, you know, not, not just time, not just money, but also the physical and emotional, um, right. is it going to burn you out? Is it going to tire you out so that you can't do other things? Another element of it is, um, is around, what else you actually could be doing. So, you know, the, the opportunity cost of it. Oppor we opportunity often... cost. Yeah. I, I just want to pause on that phrase. I think it's really the opportunity cost of engaging in something. So you're going to lose something in the future if you decide to do something. That's, that's exactly right. So if you are rating your opportunities, and if this was a 10, if you said literally you couldn't make me a better offer. Like this is it, right? Mm -hmm. um, then fantastic, great, do it. Uh, because nothing will come along that you would prefer. But for this particular offer, uh, it was it was unpaid. They would have paid for my travel, but I wasn't getting any money. And I realized, oh, well, you know, if I actually had a paid speaking opportunity that week that I then had to turn down in favor of this, that that would kind of suck. So you know, that's that's maybe one criterion to think about. Also, I'm an introvert, and it it would have been fun to see my friend, and I'm sure I would have met cool people. But part of the premise of this was that it was like multiple days where you're kind of hanging out with the conference people, and you're expected to do that. And I thought, oh, you know. What, what if, what if it's clicky or, you know, what if I just get sick of all these strangers? Like that sounded like it actually might be a little tiring rather than uh, refreshing. So, okay. So, you know, slowly I'm looking at this and no, it's not a 10. Is it a seven? Is it a six? Is it a five? And I, I realized that there were a lot of other things that might actually be better opportunities. And then once I homed in on the fact that what I was really excited about was seeing my friend and I realized there were other ways to do it. Right. Uh, it made it clear that I could that I could pass on the opportunity and be all right with that. So that was another way of of thinking it through. And then the last piece that I'll mention, and of course, feel free, Michael, to to dive into any particular elements that you want to go into more detail about. But the last one that I'll just mention is around the question of just understanding the really the the total uh, the total piece, the total picture of it. So. For instance, it is super easy, and I have done this myself. If somebody says, "Hey, will you do a webinar for us?" Yes, yes. and you know, "Oh, it's a good cause" or whatever, and I think, "Well, you know, it's only an hour. I mean, I can do right. that. I can spare an so hour for that." How many, how many times have I said that kind of thing to myself? Yeah, absolutely. And then you realize, "Oh my God, they want to have two planning calls. 
oh, they want me to create a new deck for it. And that's going to take at least an hour. And oh, wait, they're a little bossy about it now. They want me to make changes to the deck. Okay, that's going to take another half an hour. And all of, oh, and then they need me to to send them my headshot and my bio. And oh, they need me to answer these pre-questions. And all of a sudden, this thing you've agreed to do, it's actually like four hours. It's four and a half hours. And so you realize, I've just literally given away half of a work day on this obligation, and I didn't even understand it. And those are the kinds of mistakes that that many people never stop making. And I think we need to get smart about it and to learn to stop making them. You've got to be very mindful in the moment uh, when these things come up, don't you? I mean, in terms of your deliberation about it. Absolutely. And in fact... Um, one of the things that's that's often hardest for people is just literally, and I and I have this in the book uh, in the long game, but part of it is just literally what words do you use? People sometimes get tongue tied. They're like, oh, I want to say no, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't know what to what to say or how to how to refuse it. And so it's actually a really good idea um, for all of us to have pre-written no scripts so that you can refer to them, you know, so that you can actually just kind of copy and paste and you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel about, Oh my God, how do I break it to them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you, you, can you just give us, give us an example of something because you cover, you know, you you talk about how to do it gently, but yet with appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So also it's depending on the type of request there are possibilities sometimes for counter offers that you can make. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it's, will you do this webinar? Um, you know, that's often a, a yes or no answer, but, you know, I mean, maybe not because it's possible that you are too busy, but maybe you have a friend that, you know, is looking to do more webinars or they have, you know, a book that just came out. So they're looking to talk to everybody or something like that. Um, so you could potentially recommend that. Um, if somebody wants to, you know, pick your brain, like people always like to do, mm-hmm. um, I actually recommend that people write up an article somewhere. This could literally be something they put on LinkedIn or something they put on Medium that that answers in one place all of the very typical questions. You know, if it's like, gosh, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm a college student and I think I want to go to medical school and I think I want to be a thoracic surgeon. Uh, well, you know, you don't really need to have 15 of those, right. And spend all all this time doing it. You could write an article like how to know if you want to be a thoracic surgeon or, you know, five, five reasons not to become a thoracic surgeon, whatever it is, you post it on medium. And then anytime people come to you, you can say, um, Hey, you know, I'd, I'd love to be supportive. Tell you what, read this article first. I think this is probably going to answer the majority of your questions. If you still have questions after this, feel free to get back in touch. And that's a great strategy. Ninety percent of people, yeah. they'll be fine. They're fine. Get the information there. The, the last piece of this, uh, it's not in the quote checklist, but I, I maybe it should be in my opinion, and that is the idea of saying hell yeah or hell no. What and that's Derek Sivers, you know, came up with that phrase, and I found it to be incredibly useful. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Derek Sivers is an entrepreneur. He was the founder of a, 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 19, a popular sort of 1990s and early 2000s uh, business called CD Baby that was a uh, resource that enabled independent musicians to sell their music online. And uh, he 
exited from that uh, maybe 15 years ago and has done a lot of writing and speaking since. And one of his most famous um, for, you know, phrases or concepts, actually he, uh, he credits a friend of his with, in, with inventing it and then he, he popularized it. But the idea is hell yes or no. And the, the basic idea is that where we often get in trouble, again, you know, I, I was um, sort of alluding to something similar. If something's a bad offer, like you, you know it. You're okay saying no. Like, right, oh, right. hey, Michael, uh, I was just wondering, would you would you help me uh, move all weekend? <laughs> like, uh, no, like, eh, no, I, I don't know. But the problem is is sort of the mid range things. Like, let's call them the five to seven on the scale, where yes. you're like, hmm, well, you know, I'm I'm not loving it, but you know, gosh, maybe I'll meet someone interesting there, or oh, you know, maybe you know, I should probably do that because it would be good for my resume, or oh, gosh, I've, I've been saying I should see her, and it's been like six months, so she'll be mad at me if I don't. So yeah, I get, whatever. So all you the have- rationalizations and excuses, yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And so what, what Derek Sever says is, look, you know, like that's, that's basically the, the roadway to hell is saying yes to all <laughs> of the things that are like five to seven or even five yeah. to eight on that list. He says that the, the cleanest thing that we can do to preserve our sanity and preserve our schedules is to, to have it be a hell yes or no. So meaning on our own personal, like, you know, 10 point scale, it's basically got to be a nine or a 10 where we're like so excited to do it. We're like, obviously, of course I'll go to this. Uh, otherwise we should say no to that. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to that in the early career thing that we're going to talk about later. Cause there's, there's sometimes when you say yes to some things, it turns out that it was a good hell yes, but you just didn't know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 All right. So then uh, the next piece in, in the book is, you know, setting the right goals. And so, you know, the two things, the things we've talked about so far are kind of the background, you know, why are we so busy and, you know, how to say no and how to evaluate the opportunity costs and all that. But the, the, the real heart of the entire enterprise, your life, the enterprise of your life is setting the right goals and understanding what you want. And I, I just tell, I just literally two days ago, I was on the phone with a, a well-established academic cardiothoracic surgeon. And he's in the standard state of overwhelm. All right. And, you know, in an academic surgical career, you got this trip, you're supposed to be a triple threat threat. You're supposed to, you know, uh, do research and publish. You're supposed to teach and you're going to do clinical research. And if the implicit assumption is we're supposed to do all three of those. Well, he liked research and, you know, uh, but it had faded by the, by the wayside. And, and I, and I just, I asked him because he's, he's at the point of 52 and he's still struggling to kind of do the triple threat thing. And I said, if, if you had to pick one of those three things, what would you pick? And he's like, well, I don't know. You know, I'm, I, I like, uh, I like operating, you know, and I, I, I really do like research, but I, I just haven't been able to you know, get it going. And it, it just spoke to me about the, the lack of clearly defined goals and what you want out of life and, and, and really being set by the circumstances that you're in, in a way. Uh, so how do we go about setting the right goals for ourselves, uh, especially when we're younger and we're starting out in our careers? Yeah, I think that's such a great example, Michael. And, you know, it's, it's true 
that oftentimes there are these expectations, implicit or explicit, about mm, yeah. what you should be doing, what it should look like. And many of us um, just kind of end up mar marching along that path to greater or lesser success. And um, as with your friend, sometimes we, you know, we wonder what's, what's gone wrong, um, but there hasn't been a lot of deliberate choice involved. Right. And one of, I think, the most important elements of strategic thinking, one of the most uh, critical pieces, I, uh, I'm a big fan of a book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rummelt, who's a professor at UCLA. And in it, one of the points that he makes that I think is quite profound is that ultimately strategy is about choices. And most you know, brilliant strategy actually is technically not that surprising, right? It's not like, oh my God, where did that come from? Like mm -hmm. most strategic choices, if we think about, you know, companies doing X, Y, Z or military commanders doing a thing, often it's not that shocking, but it ends up shocking people and it ends up being effective simply because for so many people, the vast majority of people, they refuse to make choices. They never decide. And so they end up doing a half-assed job at everything and it just doesn't work. Whereas if you commit and you focus and you make a choice, you actually can, can really marshal your resources toward an outcome and get a dramatically superior um, result. So I think it's very much like that for our own lives that we, we kind of need to, to pick what we're aiming toward. And that, that doesn't mean never doing anything else. In fact, in the long game, I'm a big fan and I advocate for uh, adopting a 20% time concept yes. like Google has talk about popularized. That. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I don't think in any way that it's uh, appropriate for people to be you know, monomaniacal in their mm -hmm. pursuits. Mm -hmm. But I do think that you can't, for instance, strive equally toward three outcomes at the same time. Right, right. As I love the phrase, what you focus on grows. And it certainly is true here. So how do, how do we, you, you talk about the, the four things that help you set the right goals. Optimize for interesting, forget what others think. What kind of person do you want to be, which I think is incredibly important. And then going to extremes. Can you kind of talk a little bit about those four aspects? Sure, absolutely. So optimize for interesting is a concept that I talk about largely because for a lot of people, we are not necessarily sure at the outset what the right goal is or what we want to be doing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk in our culture about, you know, find your passion and, uh, yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. But and if you know what your passion is, then Godspeed. But it becomes a big problem if you're not actually quite sure. Because first of all, you, you feel a little bit of shame. Like, why does everybody else have a passion and I don't have a passion? And I don't know what mine is. Yeah. 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 The pressure. It, it induces. Yeah. yeah. It, it really is. And so what I am suggesting as an alternative is that instead of like essentially banging your head against the wall and like, what's my passion? What's my passion? Let me figure it out. Uh, that doesn't really work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what we should be optimizing for is what we find interesting because essentially it's, it's a lower bar and therefore an easier bar, you know, for, for almost anyone, you might not know what your passion is, but hopefully you at least know what you find 
interesting? You know, like what's a thing where you're like, well, that's kind of cool. I could, I could stand to use, you know, to learn more about that. I mean, it's kind of the difference between, um, you know, you go out on a date with someone and they say, oh, well, is she your soulmate? And it's like, well, uh, I don't know. We had one date. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. But what you hopefully, yeah, exactly. What you hopefully are willing to say is like, well, you know, yeah, I could see a second date with her and that's good enough. You just keep moving in that direction until you decide she either is your soulmate or you know what, maybe, maybe not. And so you look for something else that's interesting. That's, that's the same process we can use in our career. I just want to say it again, optimize for interesting. And I I just, it's such, this is one of the central, I think most critical aspects of the book, Uh, you know, the ability to see what really interests you and then leverage that in your own life and, and, and act on it. Now, forget about what others think is the next one. Yes. Yes. Well, this, this is an important one as well. Um, Especially, I mean, you know, dare I say it, uh, a lot of people's parents want them to be doctors. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty much if this is the path that you've pursued, odds are you've been getting a lot of thumbs up from society and from the people around you. And that can get a little addictive. And so it becomes, uh, it becomes a little stressful or threatening if for any reason you are deviating from a norm that other people have set. Uh, you know, if you have an advisor that, you know, is saying, oh, you know, you should really do this fellowship but maybe you don't want to do that fellowship. Mm-hmm. Or if, uh, if for some reason you decide that what's interesting to you is pursuing, you know, maybe, maybe an area of practice that's a little bit more um, esoteric or unpopular right. or out of vogue or whatever it is, you might get some blowback. And that is something that you have to emotionally be prepared to deal with. You might not have had to deal with it before, but if you want to be able to successfully mark the, the path that you want rather than what other people want, um, it's, it's, it's one of those inevitable things that I think we need to brace ourselves for and be willing to deal with. Yeah. And how do you, how do you kind of contend with, so if you're, if you're in a practice or an academic practice and, and, you know, to some extent you do have to care what other people think there's the kind of, being a, an important member of the community and contributing to the community and some things you just sort of have to do because it's part of the, the system. Uh, but how do you navigate that against, you know, somebody else basically determining for you how you're going to, you know, run your career? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a great uh, Thomas Jefferson quote that I, I like in this context, which is, uh, in matters of taste, swim with the tide and in matters of principle stand like a rock stand like a rock yeah (laughs) so i think yeah yeah, it's it's kind of a a question of just determining like well what battles do you do you want to fight um if it is a matter of style quote unquote or you know let's expand it out to a matter of you know making nice with departmental politics or something Mm -hmm. like that like Mm -hmm. okay all right you want me to serve on this committee okay yeah. You know, but, uh, but if, if it gets to the point where it becomes a question of, are you able at a fundamental level to pursue what you're interested in or not, then that becomes the point where you, you really need to sort of step up. I mean, I, I think about, you know, heroic physicians in history, 
you know, Semmelweis and mm-hmm. uh, his mm-hmm. his understanding about um, about you know the actual causes of uh, of infant mortality, and you know, no one no one believed him that washing your hands was a thing, right. Right. <laughs> or yeah. about the the guy in Australia that you know drank the 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 broth of h pylori to yes, uh, to yes. prove that right. that's what caused ulcers i mean you know god bless like those are profiles yeah. in courage yeah that's for sure and and you you hit the word courage there and I, I think that's something that's really important to touch on because it does take courage to stand up for yourself internally in your head and say no to some things. Can you can you comment on the courage aspect for of this whole thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, this kind of bleeds into the next uh, point that you were alluding to, Michael, which is uh, what kind of person yes. do you want to be? And in the long game, I talk about this. There's a, a story that I tell about a, a a friend and colleague. You might even have met her. I'm not sure, Alyssa Cohn, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alyssa. I, I love this example. She uh, she's an executive coach. She works with startups, and she decided a couple of years ago that she wanted to sign up. She was a big fan of Hamilton, and so she got excited when she heard that Lin Manuel Miranda had this other project called Freestyle Love Supreme, uh, which is this kind of side project that he and some colleagues run, um, which is training around freestyle improv beatbox rap. <laughs> and now, you know, Alyssa is a nice Jewish girl from Massachusetts. So she did not in fact grow up doing improv freestyle beatbox rap. <laughs> so, but she thought it was cool. So she signs up for this course. And I mean, you know, like she, she put it off a couple of times cause she's like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But she signed up for it. She goes in and, you know, basically it's like, a bunch of young guys who are like 20 years younger than her. They are all excellent rappers. She's never rapped before aside from singing along to the lyrics to Hamilton. And she's like, Oh God, what did I get myself into? And she tells the story that after the first class, she literally emailed the instructor and was like, I I don't think it's the right place for me. I don't think I'm cut out for this. And, uh, and he, he reassured her and, and what, what she realized was, okay, the point is not to become like queen Latifah. This is, this is not the goal. The goal is that what she had set out to do is she wanted to become a more creative and uninhibited person. And, she actually could do that with this class. Even if it turned out she was rubbish at rap, she could achieve her goal by putting herself through this process and really just soaking it up and learning and being in the moment. And so she decided to to go for it. So she took this like two month course and she, you know, performed and did this public rap presentation in front of her friends. Uh, But, but at the end, it was about coming back to this core value of who do you want to be? And the answer wasn't like, oh, I want to become a professional rapper. It was, I want to be a more creative and improvisational person. And so she, she knew the right path forward. Fabulous insight. And, you know, it reminds me of an experience that I had, uh, you know, after I got out of Hazelin for the prescription narcotic problem, I, I was, I, I made a clear decision to myself that I wanted to be a different person. I wanted to add some skills to myself. And one of those skills was being more gentle and compassionate and present. And so I signed up for a self-compassion retreat. Uh, 
and I, I landed at some you know place in the desert with 60 other women, virtually all of them social workers and psychologists, and four other men. And I mean, okay, so a thoracic surgeon with tattoos, right? <laughs> and a male. And there I am in the middle of desert on a retreat with all that. And I almost left. I mean, just like uh, Alyssa, I, I thought I can't do this. But sticking it out and sticking to what I knew I wanted to do and how I wanted to become was transformational over time. And that's the first time in my life, other than my career, where I'd been really deliberate about the thoughts and process about who I wanted to become and what kind of person I wanted to be. And it was really a profound uh, shift in my thinking and it added so much to my life. Well, then the go to extremes, Dory, last piece of that. Yeah. I think that, that is an example almost of it, but. Absolutely. Well, so when it comes to motivating ourselves sometimes around our goals and also not just motivating ourselves, but sending a clear message to other people about who we are. I argue in the long game that one of the best things we can do is in fact, to go to extremes. Um, you know, for, for most of us, there's a pretty tightly conscripted sense of norms about, you know, right. we, we do this, we don't do that. You know, you're kind of in a, in a range, but uh, it's usually nothing, nothing too crazy, but Sometimes if you really want to break out of the ruts that we put ourselves in, um, you have to take decisive action. And so one example that I give is uh, a gentleman, also part of the, uh, the recognized expert community that, uh, that you're part of, Michael, mm -hmm. uh, Luis Velasquez. Uh, Luis is an executive coach uh, now who's one of the, uh, he's one of the coaches for a, a famous course at Stanford, uh, works with a lot of great tech companies. Um, interesting background. He used to be a plant geneticist. He has a PhD in plant genetics. He was a, mm -hmm. a university professor, uh, but his whole life changed uh, a number of years ago when he was diagnosed with brain cancer and he had to have surgery. He had to go through all his cancer treatments and when, when he got done, um, his doctors basically said to him like, okay, well, you're not going to teach anymore. And, uh, in fact, you're going to be lucky to walk. So just, you know, mm -hmm. kind of reset your expectations. And he was having none of it. <laughs> and he said, no, that's, that's not, that's not how it's going to be. And he and his wife, uh, right around the time of his diagnosis, he and his wife had taken a trip to Chicago and they had kind of accidentally stumbled into the Chicago marathon that was being run that day. And he noticed, you know, all of these people running for charity and, you know, for this cancer and for that, you know, cancer and, and you know, charitable fundraising is, is a, a big component of a lot of marathon running. And he vowed that day, he's like, when I finish my treatment, that's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And so he, he willed himself. He said that when he got exercises, that he would, he would do them, you know, like 10 times, 10 X what they prescribed, you know, like the strength mm -hmm. exercises mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the PT, because he was so committed. Um, 
all his all his doctors and, and the aides around him would be like, are you ready for your PT? And in he he refused to call it PT. He said, it's my marathon training. <laughs> I love it. I love and, it. Uh, and so a year to the day from his from his surgery, he actually did in fact run and complete the Chicago marathon. And that became the the kind of North star, the central guiding principle that he used to bring himself back. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Then we're to the last piece of, of the, of the tidbits of wisdom here. And the next one is time to explore. Uh, and I, I think this is really crucial. And so, you know, in the pace of a, you know, once you get into medical school and it, it's almost kind of like the, in a way, the bars close to some extent behind you because you enter in a way, the prison of the medical career, you're going into residency and, and then you get your job and, you know, you're, and then it feels so great and you're operating, you're doing all this stuff and you're locked in, you're potentially locked in and and one of the tragic potential problems with that is the lack of effort to develop other sides of ourselves that can be so vital to our mental and physical well-being. An example, Joe Dirani is the past president of the STS. He's a jazz, he's a musician and he plays in a jazz musician band. And he says it's a vital part of his mental health. And so can you talk about what you call 20% time and how important that is for our, our, our overall life trajectory? Yeah, absolutely. So 20% time is a concept that many people may be familiar with from Google, which popularized it. Uh, and the idea is that if you were a Google employee, you can theoretically take about 20% of your paid time to explore experimental topics, I guess you could say, things that are uh, kind of, you know, micro moonshots. They, they may or may not pay off, but they're things that you find interesting and hopefully will be value valuable to the company. And uh, in Google lore, that is how Google News was invented. That is how Gmail itself was invented. So it's paid off in some pretty big ways to enable employees to be creative and kind of mess around with concepts they've been thinking about. Um, the ironic thing, is that nowadays there are estimates that fewer than 10% of Google employees actually take advantage of 20% mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, it's sad, but it kind of makes sense because for all of us, it is very, very easy to succumb to just the typical schedule of, oh my gosh, I have so much to do. I couldn't possibly try something else. I have to do this and this and this. Yeah. And, and the damn to-do list. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we just end up continuing to march down our prescribed path. Um, but I want to encourage everyone to, you know, whether, whether you work at Google or not, whether you work for yourself or not, uh, I think all of us can benefit from having 20% time. But the key is that we have to be the guardians of it. Nobody's going to hand you 20% time. You have to take it. You have to uh, carve it out and, and really be kind of uh, forceful about it. Because it's easy. It's very, very easy to get caught up with everything else that we need to do. But if you create the discipline of having experimental time to, you know, to learn new things, to try new things, to, to spend it on networking or developing a new skill or working on a side project, what's great about 20% time and why I think the number is powerful is that if it doesn't work out, it's annoying, but it's not devastating. 
you know, your life is not going to be ruined because you spent 20% of your time on something that didn't work. Um, but it's a also good experiment. it's exactly, it's a good experiment, but also if it does work 20% of your time, you know, spent over a period of months or even years that can really actually add up to something. You know, it's not 1% of your time where it's like, oh my God, by the time you're a hundred, maybe it'll pay off. You know, 20% of your time within a year, within a few years, you could really have something on your hands and it gives you more options. Huge, huge. Yeah. All right. So I'd like to wrap up the interview uh, with uh, the conversation with uh, some thoughts from you about the three, what I would call the three career stages of a surgeon or any physician uh, in, in that goes into medicine or person that goes into medicine. The first one is residency, all right? That's the time when your life is barely your own, all right? You got 80 hour work week, et cetera, et cetera. You struggle just to you know eat and get some exercise. The next one is the early career where the say yes habit really can play uh, a major role in your advancement. Uh, and then the final one is a later career. And any, any advice, wisdom, suggestions you have about those three arenas? Certainly. Well, I think for, for all of them, but I mean, especially for residency, um, one of the concepts I talk about in the long game is uh, one of, of what I call career waves. And, uh, and also yeah. uh, just sort of understanding about heads up and heads down mode. And mm-hmm. there, there are some times where it's just all about execution and you have to be gentle with yourself in those yes. moments. Like, yes. you know, like you can't not do your residency. Like, unfortunately, right. <laughs> like you need to do it and you don't, you don't have a lot of agency, uh, but it has to be accomplished. And so I think this is really a moment where you can't beat yourself up if you're not doing a lot of other things. The goal is get through it, you know, try, try in these like interstitial moments to enjoy it as much as you can. But, uh, this is probably not going to be the time that you have this expansive, uh, you know, external, uh, facing, uh, you know, possibilities, like you do what you need to do, but it's, it's, it lays the groundwork. And so the key is, it's, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the, the hamster in the, in the cage, and then they open the cage, the key is don't keep living the life of a resident once you don't have to, yes. right? Recalibrate yes. and start thinking about things in different ways and understand that there's different possibilities. And so when you get into your early career post-residency, as you were saying, Michael, it's exactly right. Early on, saying yes is your default is actually the better move because odds are, number one, um, you don't really necessarily have enough experience to know what's a good offer and what's not. So you kind of have to see, you kind of have to learn. Uh, Number two, odds are you don't have a huge network because you're early in your career. So you do want to build it and you need, you need to meet people in order to do it. And number three, it is uh, a way that you can, you can basically just sort of, you know, test things out. Like think of everything as an experiment, just be like, "Mm, let's, you know, let's see. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to keep throwing, you know, good money after bad or good time after bad. Like if you meet with somebody once and it seems not promising, don't keep doing it, but having lots of initial conversations or, you know, you know, go to the meeting, go to the conference, check out the thing, just see if you like it, see if it seems like, it's interesting, it's interesting. Uh, or not. Is it interesting? Yes, yes. Yeah. 
a perfect example of that is when I was, I came on as faculty at the University of Minnesota and the chair called me up one day and said, uh, Mike, I, uh, you're going to take over the medical student clerkship. And I remember <laughs> I'm sitting on the couch, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, no, F you, I don't want to, this is not what I wanted to do. What are you talking about? But what did I say? Great. <laughs> and it turned out to be one of the best moves of my career because it was a thing I learned. I didn't know about education, how much I would enjoy it. And it turned out to be a major part of my career. But in, in thinking about what you said, you know, okay, so if I had done that for a while and I found that it was really not something I wanted to do, then it would have been the courage piece to say, look, this is not what I want to do in my career. So I appreciate the opportunity. All right. And then finally, last thing, later career, you know, sort of the, my friend who I talked about earlier. Yes. So later in your career, when you do presumably have by this point, more connections, more things coming at you rather, you know, like early on, like nobody knows who you are. It's not like they're going to be throwing you tons of opportunities. So you kind of need to hustle to get the opportunities, but you have the opposite problem 20 or 30 years into your career, because, you know, everybody's thinking of you for everything. And so you have to fend them off a little bit. So the challenge becomes less uh, you know, saying yes to everything like you did earlier and more about where we began the conversation, which is saying exactly. strategic no's and getting clear on what you want to be prioritizing and then making the choices that are aligned with that. And I think that's the question I would, I would admonish everyone throughout their entire career to think about and constantly revisit almost on an annual basis, kind of an annual planning basis, you know, but uh, when we get swept up in the pace of life and the to-do lists and email and every other damn thing, it just happens to go by the wayside so often. So this is just tremendous story. Uh, you know, so much great wisdom and advice from you. And in this book, it's, it's just really remarkable. And your book, The Long Game, is coming out September 1st. Is that correct? Uh, tw September 21st. 21st. Okay. I'm sorry. So September 21st, everybody mark that moment because when it is out, I will be buying copies for all of my six children and other people because it's one of the best guides to, in my opinion, living a meaningful and creative life that, that I've ever read. And so if Dory, if anybody wants to get a, a hold of you or reach out to you, what would you, what would you tell them to do? I appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much. Well, if they're eager to get a head start on diving into some of these concepts, I have a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment that folks can get, and they can download it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. And of course, uh, they can order or pre-order the book, depending on uh, when they're listening to this, and uh, hopefully immerse themselves even more into these, uh, these questions as well. And great. And I, I can speak from personal experience. Dory is one of the best coaches that anybody could ever find on the planet. So if you have an interest in being coached about your career, this is the woman for you. Well, thank Dory, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real honor and a pleasure. and so appreciated. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.